Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so relieved that <laughs> CIS went smoothly and it's now all wrapped up. We have our hot wash meeting after we tape this podcast and I'm very pleased with how it all went. The panelists were amazing. The keynotes were really interesting. And thank you for attending, Steve. I know it's a busy week for you since you're heading off today. That's right. We're taping this earlier than usual on the Friday before we drop this episode. And this afternoon, I drive to Montreal and hop on a plane to eventually get to Copenhagen for a conference on military politics. So I'll be putting on my old hat of, of looking at a lot of the NATO and Afghanistan stuff and, and talking about how do officers engage in politics when they're on multilateral military operations. So it's it's getting some of the, uh, the crew of civil mill types together in a different location. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm very lucky. I am happy that we're traveling again for work. It's still a bit of a mix, right? There are some events that are still online. I know that you had a presentation at the University of Chicago this week, and that was online. And then, you know, in Europe, they seem to be opening things up a bit more in terms of in-person conferences and workshops. So we're, we're definitely turning a bit of a corner when it comes to more in-person events in our field. Yeah, we're starting to get registrations for the year ahead event that we're holding at the War Museum on December 3rd. Still a fair amount of tickets left, but, and, and our program is solidifying. Uh, we've got a really good program addressing a variety of issues, including stuff that was sort of hot this week. So let's get into it. We have a new cabinet. What is your thoughts on the new faces and the old faces who've been moved around in this new government? Well, Steve, we were mostly focused on the Minister of National Defense, I think for months and months and months. And <laughs> one of the first defense experts to really comment on this uh, forcefully with your with your op-ed. But yeah, the, the departure of Harjit Sajjan, I think, was expected by this point. And he'll remain in the international policy realm because he's going to be the Minister of International Development. And in charge of implementing the feminist international assistance policy. So he'll still be within that ecosystem of Canadian international policy. And I hope that we're going to get more clarity on how all of these portfolios can work together. There's a new Minister of Foreign Affairs, new Minister of International Development, new Minister of Defense. And so my hope moving forward is that Canadian priorities are more clearly defined and that we have a good understanding of how these different aspects of Canadian international policy can work together in a, in a way that makes sense. But 
for sure, I certainly welcome the news that the former procurement minister, Anita Anand, was made Minister of National Defense. I've been asked by journalists, and I'm sure you've been asked this too, mm -hmm. if I'm concerned that she has no defense background. And I've repeated that I have absolutely no concerns. Someone who's familiar with the law, procurement, and the COVID-19 response, I think will be incredibly well positioned to lead the defense portfolio. Yeah, I actually uh, told the journalists that having no defense experience was a plus, that having former military officers serve in that capacity was a bad idea. We learned that from not just the uh, Cy John's experience, but Gordon O'Connor's, and, and if you look at the United States, Jim Mattis. You know, civilian control of the military requires people with civilian mindsets and without military networks. Exactly. Not having been shaped or influenced by military culture or military leaders in the past is an asset in this sexual misconduct and leadership crisis that the CAF is facing. But Steve, I don't know if you agree, but the, the pressure on her is <laughs> the expectations are sky high. And I'm hoping this is not a glass cliff scenario where mm. You know, you have women given access to these high-level prestigious portfolios when the organization is in crisis. So she has a tougher assignment than her predecessor when he was trusted with the portfolio with every yeah. past cabinet shuffle, just because of the expectations placed on her performance. And one woman cannot fix misogyny in the military, but it can perhaps help normalize the presence of women leaders in those spaces. And this is receiving a boost also because the Minister of Foreign Affairs is, is a woman. So I don't know if you saw that picture on Twitter where you saw Minister Anand and um, the VCDS and the, mm -hmm. the Deputy Minister yeah, all walking together down the hallway, but that does send a signal. Uh, those are important role models, I think, for the future and to normalize the presence of, of women leaders in what have traditionally been positions held by, by men. You know, who, who knows what the immediate decisions are going to be in the next few weeks. I know that we were chatting before starting pushing the record button about naming a CDS and at least telling Admiral McDonald that he's no longer welcome back, but in an official manner. What do you expect the first decisions to be? There's a lot to be done, so it's hard to say what will happen first, but I do think that the Admiral McDonald will have to be told to retire, and that should have been done five minutes after that letter hit the, the press. So that's that's still overdue. So that's something that, and that's a relative, it's an easy decision. It's a no-brainer. There's no way McDonald's going to be back. So might as well get that out of the way. It, the harder decision is to figure out whether General Error should stay or go. You know, he has this acting name before his title and will they remove it or will they keep him acting until they figure out who they want to put in his place? So that there's still a lot of uncertainty there and I'm not sure that will be a, a fast decision. They could announce a, a new defense review. We've ha we had one four years ago and the United States has what they call quadrennial reviews because it happens every four years, whereas Canadian defense reviews happen whenever. But it might make sense for a new minister of defense to have a, a new defense review because situ the situations have changed. There's lots of different things going on. The, the increased priority of domestic operations, for instance, should require the military and the and the DND to look and figure out how are they going to change things to address the new reality of there being just simply more domestic operations. This is something that General Ayer hinted at in the speech he gave at KCIS, and we're going to talk more about that in a couple of minutes. So a defense review is one possibility because there's a lot of decisions to be made, and consulting the community is not a bad idea. 
I think that's something that worked out well four years ago. Maybe not just find more Supreme Court ju- retired Supreme Court justices. There are other people who can be part of these things. Uh, I do think that they need to revisit some of the stuff in the su- strong, secure, and engaged. If they really want to make northern modernization a thing, then that and that as a high priority, then they should be asking themselves some questions like, well, what are we not going to spend money on? What are how are you going to shift resources around? And maybe those are questions that don't want to be asked because they're afraid that the budgets are going to eventually get cut once somebody starts becoming more concerned about deficits. But I do think that they need to think about the threat situations out there now, what the threats are. They should take a more serious look at where domestic operation fits into the priorities. And so I think that's one thing they could do. But I do think that I I was asked by the media, I I couldn't imagine a a person amongst the possible candidates that makes more sense than than Anand, because she does have that procurement experience. So she, she knows a fair amount about what the, you know, one hunk of, of usual, usually bad news that comes out of D&D is about procurement stories. So she's, she's very familiar with that. She has the corporate governance law prof background. And yes, this is, you mentioned this is, you know, really challenging job, but, you know, she handled adeptly the vaccine purchases. Now there's, there's various controversies about that, but Canada got vaccinated much faster than most of the rest of the world. And we did a far better job than not just the U.S., but ultimately the U.K., Australia, the countries we tend to compare ourselves to. And that was not an easy procurement process project. I think they followed the right strategies. There were some risks taken, some investments that didn't pay off, but ultimately most investments did pay off in a big, big way. That that was a higher threshold, higher risky thing because that was the lives of you know 37 million Canadians, which is I think a bit more of a priority than the Canadian military. Although you'll find people on Twitter pushing back about that. I think that she's the right person for the job, but it's not just her and it's not just going to be things that are going to be fixed in the next two days, three months or six months. It's going to be a multi-year project with multiple, the Ministry of Defense ultimately working on it, multiple Chiefs of Defense working on it because it's a, it's, it's a generational problem. It's, it's not a, you know, change one institution, everything snaps back into place. I think one of the big questions that I have, and I think it does require a little more thinking, I've been, you know, saying we should make faster decisions, but one of the things that we'll take more time to figure out is this. Everybody wants more independent review, more independent prosecution or adjudication of disputes of, of sexual misconduct cases, whatever, what have you. There's no such thing as a truly independent process. So who do these folks report to? Do they report to the minister? Well, that seems to have been problematic in the case of the ombudsman. Do they report to parliament? I would say that's problematic because Canadian Parliament is really lousy to oversight, as you'll find out in my book that comes out in two or three years uh, from now. Uh, whenever it comes out, whenever we're finished with it. And so I'm not exactly sure how we anchor these independent processes. So that's something that I think Anand has got to take some serious thought to, is who ultimately oversees these independent processes. And I don't think there's been enough conversation about that. Yeah, and, and I think this is one of those issues where there is this appetite to wait for what the Arbor Review will deliver. There are other issues where I think action could be taken much sooner. I think this is one of those key questions raised where probably they want the, the full recommendations on that front before actually making a decision and setting up a new process. I want to raise another issue that was talked about this week with the um, announcement of the new cabinet, and that's the uh, leadership churn in the position of Minister of Foreign Affairs. So many people were surprised that Marc Garneau did not retain his role as Minister of Foreign Affairs. And this is a post that has had a lot of shuffling and that really doesn't help the pursuit of Canada's, Canada's interest abroad. Mm-hmm. So Mélanie Joly is coming in as the, I think, fifth Foreign Affairs Minister for Trudeau. And she'll have 
a host of priorities to manage. And so you were talking in defense review, but mm -hmm. pushing back on that slightly, because it seems to me that so long as there isn't a similar exercise for foreign affairs, then it seems that we continue to see those portfolios evolve in, in silos. So what do you think she means when she says that her focus for Canada will be to conduct international affairs with humility and audacity. Humility and audacity, that, that's an interesting way to put it. So it might be very, very selective audacity in places where Canada is strong. I guess that would be the thing. Be audacious on those that Canada is on, a, on firmer ground and be humble in places where Canada is weaker. I guess that, that's the way I would interpret it, which would mean being humble in the Pacific and audacious in the Atlantic is would might make sense given that Canada just doesn't do foreign policy towards Asia particularly well. You raised a really important point, which is there's now a race in Canada for which position has the, the least amount of continuity. Is it the vice chief of defense staff or is it the foreign ministry, minister of global affairs? And it's a pretty tight uh, race. And, and I think both are important that we need to have some more continuity there. And I ordinarily would say, yeah, the defense review should wait for a foreign affairs review, but that means that, that we don't get a defense review because I'm not confident that we'll see a foreign affairs review, but there should be one. We should, why can't can it happen together? Why, why can't it happen, you know, where we look at defense, foreign policy, and international assistance and development all together, because they, they should all speak to each other. Like, I, it seems to me that without an integrated, coherent <laughs> international <laughs> policy, which has all of these three aspects, there will always be this tension. You know, there on the one side, you make strong arguments to project values and protect human rights. And then on the other side, you sell arms to Saudi Arabia. Those types of issues emerge because there isn't enough coordination between the three and an overarching strategy to guide the priorities of each and then the capabilities to support them. I, I don't know why they need to be sequential necessarily. Well, it reminds me of what Petraeus and whoever else wrote the counterinsurgency manual for the United States did in 2006, which is talk about having, you know, the civilians involved in various aspects of doing counterinsurgency. And, and their line was, well, this is a civilian job, but they won't do it. So we'll eventually be asked to do it. And I think in this case, D&D could wait to sync up with a global affairs review, but I think ultimately they're going to get impatient because the word around town is simply that global affairs is not an institution that is creative, that takes risks, that 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 makes these kinds of moves. And, and we need to have a culture change at global affairs as well. Part of that has to do with, you know, being more audacious, taking more risks, figuring the things out. But if you really want to have a synced up development defense and diplomacy effort, you need to have a, a, a prime minister who really cares about these things and puts a, a lot of heft behind it. Meanwhile, you know, you're already complicating the job of a defense minister or Anand because she's got a hard enough job just getting her own house in order without having to try to stay in lockstep with global affairs and development. So I'm I'm small more are realistic about this. I, I just don't expect it to happen. I think you're right. That's the way it should work. I just don't think that's the way it's going to happen. Yeah, well, I know there's been a lot of impatience about the lack of strategic guidance mm -hmm. uh, on the defense side. So, you know, I'll be happy <laughs> with a defense review, which outlines those clear priorities. I would prefer this be done a bit more holistically and multidimensionally. And I think ultimately that makes any defense minister's job easier because then you're not constantly hedging, which is what happens when there are no clear international priorities. And that's been the problem with Canada. No clear international priorities. You don't know. Mm -hmm. The only constant is this commitment to, to NATO and NATO operations. That's been the constant. Mm -hmm. But whether it's on the UN front or relationship with the US or US-led interventions, there's a lot of fluctuation there. Very fair. 
Now, one of the big speeches this week was, big events of the past week was General Ayer talking at the conference you organized, and Mm -hmm. he had much to say about the future of the CAF and where it is after this personnel crisis, this abuse of power crisis, and this, what you referred to as as an existential threat to the military, as well as the pandemic. So what was your take on Ayer's speech to your audience? Now, we were were happy to kickstart the conference with General Ayer as our opening keynote. And I was surprised at how quickly some of uh, what he said made the news, uh, specifically with the with the shortage in the Canadian Armed Forces. He talked about a shortage of about 7,500 in the regular force trained effective strength. And that's due to a lot of reasons. You were mentioning SSC before, you know, SSC already committed to an increase in in personnel, and it just didn't materialize. The pandemic certainly exacerbated some of the the recruitment challenges because recruitment activities came to a standstill during the pandemic. And, you know, the recruitment system was already rather slow in processing files. So you add a pandemic to that. It's not only that you're not recruiting, but you're also processing files more more slowly. And then training was slowed down and in many respects canceled, especially early on in the pandemic. So if you're bringing people in and then not being able to train them, then either that stalls career progression or, you know, people get bored, tired, impatient and leave. So, you know, there was already some challenges on the recruitment and retention front. And I think those were exacerbated by COVID. And I think what we'll see certainly in the months to come is that another stressor on these military personnel challenges, obviously, are, is the ongoing leadership crisis and sexual misconduct crisis, because this is no doubt having an impact on, on morale, but it's also translating into a more difficult recruitment environment because the organization is in crisis and it's competing with you know, other employers and in, in recruiting and retaining the best talent. And it's doing that when its brand is suffering and being scrutinized. Uh, so it's going to be maybe harder to make that compelling pitch to recruit when so much is going wrong internally. So those are a few initial comments on some of the uh, military personnel challenges that were mentioned. And then, you know, what sort of made it onto the news immediately after the speech, which was this focus on recruitment and retention. Yeah. And I, it was really striking how he used the word ex- existential because later this week, there was uh, stuff on Twitter where some people pushed back saying that, you know, when Anand said the highest priority is, is this, the safety of the people in the CAF and D&D from, you know, sexual misconduct and other other forms of abuse, they pushed back that our highest priority is to defend Canada from, you know, international threats. And this was people like retired Admiral Paul Madison and Stockwell Day. It's funny how, and it's not funny, it's sad that they don't get it. That, you know, the whole symbolism of putting the personnel chapter of the strong and secure engaged, the, the last defense review first, was about putting people first because they're, you know, if you don't get that right, you can't get anything else right. And we're at that stage. That was what Air was talking about, is that if you don't get the personnel stuff right, if you can't get people to join the military and then to stay in the military so that they're growing expertise can be utilized, then you're not going to be able to fight that fight, whether that's, you know, the deterrence mission in Latvia, whether that's, 
you know, sailing ships in the Taiwan Strait, whether that's, you know, whatever operations you're doing, if you can't get the people into the force and you can't keep them in the force and you can't keep the morale up, then they're not going to be effective. And so if you care about military effectiveness, uh, which is, of course, one of the screams of your book is how all kinds of things become important only if they're pitched as, as effectiveness, which might mean that you uh, distort, I believe, is the word that you use in your book. You distort these norms, you distort these other things, but still effectiveness is the argument that's going to win that win things at the end of the day. And, and to have a retired admiral say, we don't need to worry so much about this stuff. We have to focus on the other stuff just shows that there, there was, was a generation. There may still be a generation of people in the calf that in the words of Justin Trudeau, don't get it. I do think that one of the things that the civilians are going to have to understand is that they are responsible. So the first things that Anand has said has is, 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 is sounded good thus far. And the rumors around some of the things that you might be thinking of doing suggest that, you know, we will see more civilian control of the military. But at the same time, the military has to get its house in order because it needs to recruit, it needs to retain, and it needs to protect its own people. So that way they can be the best sailors, the best aviators, the best soldiers possible. The, the folks who are doing that now are trying really hard, but they, they're under incredible amounts of stress because the systems are broken. Well, what frustrates me about these types of comments too is that they're not mutually exclusive. You know, mm -hmm. you can improve military personnel policies, you can change the culture. It doesn't mean that all other activities come to a standstill. So I think it's a bit disingenuous to begin with. I agree with you on, on the broader point is that you, you can't fight optimally when you have to watch your back. And so long as people can't trust their, their bosses or, you know, subjected to bad leadership or are caught in this cycle of, you know, rampant sexual misconduct that is unaddressed and festers an environment that is permissive of this kind of behavior, then you're just not in an optimal posture to take that fight, whether that's abroad or whether that's fighting a pandemic domestically. So I get really impatient when I read tweets like that and I, and I hold back from from engaging or getting <laughs> more legs uh, than they have. But, you know, A, not mutually exclusive. B, you know, if you want your force to fight optimally, that internal piece is so critical. As you said, it, it's important for effectiveness. It's important because it's the right thing to do. And it's the kind of professional environment that everybody wants, you know, one that's characterized by respect and dignity. And then once you're you're secure on that front, of course, that's going to help your performance overall. So it's, it's a no-brainer. And yeah, I'm done talking about it. <laughs> and I will let you say the final words and setting up our main interview. Thanks, Steph. Always a pleasure to hang out with you. So uh, Thomas Trudeau, who hosts, co-hosts our Consolé de Securité uh, podcast, and Stephanie Carvin, who's one of my colleagues at Nipsia, who, who is one of the podcast innovators in town with the Intrepid podcast. They have a book they've written together on the intelligence sector in Canada. And so the interviews about their book, what they found out about what the Canadian intelligence folks do well, how it goes poorly, what we need to do to improve things. And so it's a really very interesting conversation because uh, we don't talk enough about the intelligence side of things. And they're really two experts on it. They've both worked inside of government on these matters. And now they have really good perspectives on it from outside. They've interviewed more than 70 people. And they found that the secret squirrels were actually pretty talkative about this stuff as long as they focused on process rather than specific policies or specific situations. And so uh, we're going to plug their book in our next segment. That sounds good to me. I will speak to you in a couple of weeks. Safe travel, Steve. Looking forward to seeing Ottawa in early November, Steph.
So today we have the authors of a new book on intelligence. It's called Intelligence Analysis and Policymaking the Canadian Experience. The authors are Thomas Junot. We are very, of course, very familiar with Thomas Junot, who is the co-host of Frank, a French podcast, Conseil de Sécurité. And everybody knows Steffi Carbon from being the groundbreaking podcaster in town with Intrepid and from uh, all the other uh, public engagements that she does. So uh, they're here today to talk about their book a little bit, and we're here to learn a little bit more about intelligence. So the first question, of course, is why did you write the book besides, you know, getting points for tenure, promotion, glory, all that kind of stuff? You know, I think both of us had an interest in, in, in this issue coming from a slightly different perspective. We had both worked in government. Um, when, when I worked in, in, in the government in national defense, one of the files that I had, especially in my last couple of years, was to support a, a deputy minister's committee of intelligence analysis. And the, the challenge we had was how do we connect the, the analysis that a lot of people in the community are producing? In some cases, it's quite good. But with the needs of the actual policymakers, the deputy ministers and policy departments, et cetera. And we realized that we were basically doing an abysmal job of connecting the analysis being produced with the needs of deputies and assistant deputy ministers and political staff. So we, we actually thought hard on the military side, the intelligence side, the policy side and within DND about how to better make that connection. And we honestly did not make much success, uh, much progress. So when I left the, the government in 2014 and came to Ottawa U, I, I slowly started working from the academic side on, on these issues. And, you know, one thing next to the other uh, led to the other and, and, Stephanie came in and we did that book. I have to say, actually, it was your co-host, Stephanie Von Vlacki, who suggested it should be a book. Tamara and I were thinking of writing an article and uh, Stephanie came along and looked at what we had proposed and said, you know, this is actually a good grant and a good and a good book project. So, you know, if listeners aren't happy with this segment, they should blame your co-host. No, we will not blame our co-host. Stephanie is wonderful. So all people named Stephanie are wonderful, as far as I can tell. Did you get everybody you wanted to talk to or their, their types of groups or subjects that dodged you? For instance, when I was writing my book on Canada and Afghanistan, I could not get anybody to talk to me from CETA, not one person. So were there parts of the intelligence community in, in Canada that were more reluctant to talk to you? There was, you know, they were two secret squirrels for, to, to be uh, approached by, by academics like yourselves. So the response to our project was actually very enthusiastic, perhaps even more than what we had anticipated. I would say of the people we interviewed, and we interviewed around 70 people and ended up getting feedback from, from a few more, you know, we probably had like a 90, 95% re response rate of a like positive response rate. And in some cases, you know, people were on maternity leave or, you know, they just said th th they weren't ready, which is fine, but we were pretty pretty successful in interviewing everyone from desk analysts all the way through to former DMs, deputy ministers. And, and so that was, that was really great. So I think we felt that we had a pr pretty good coverage. There was really no one that we really struggled. Maybe, maybe former prime ministers would have been nice, <laughs> um, but they, they apparently they're all pretty busy. But I have to say, one of the cool things about the project is that, okay, we didn't get prime ministers. We were able to get quite a few people who had been in, in the PMOs of different governments and to be able to talk to them about that kind of political level as opposed to the policy level is, I think, something that's pretty unique and something that I hope, I think we're planning on expanding on as well. So all of this to say is we were pretty impressed actually at just how enthusiastic people were about this project. And we think that's because people recognize the need for it, the recognize the need for someone from the, you know, who is familiar with the community, but wanted to take a bit of an outsider look and, and put it all together and see what the state of things actually 
is. And I, I think another another reason why we had this very good response rate is that our, our book really focuses on process. Uh, it's not a book on substance. It's not a book that focuses on the, the substance of intelligence analysis. We have a few case studies, but they are limited. They are they make specific points and the book is not based on them. Uh, so talking about process, talking about machinery is actually quite doable at the unclassified level. You can really say a lot. Some, some things you can't say, but you can really say a lot. Whereas other cases like your book on Afghanistan, I mean, and I read your book a couple of years ago, there is a, a an element of process and machinery, but there's a big element of it, which is substance, i.e. what Canada actually did in Afghanistan or in any other uh, case that, that you might want to write about. That's more difficult. And that's where people get a lot more reluctant to speak, even if it's anonymously to, to academics doing research. I think so, this is Thomas' polite way of saying our book's a little bit boring. No, it sounds it sounds really fascinating because people want to see how, how the sausage gets made. And so here's what we just kind of if I can just say it's it's kind of weird. Like, you know, you start off working in intelligence and national security and you think you're going to be writing about James Bond, but you find yourself writing about Treasury Board. You know, it's it's kind of interesting in the sense that, you know, it's it's how much intelligence and national security, you know, spies, they're just like us, right? That a lot of this really does come down to public policy and engagement and how different parts of the government actually work together. Together. And maybe that sounds obvious to some people who are, you know, fighting for budgets or, or change right now. But I think for a lot of other people on the outside, they don't really recognize just to the extent that, you know, national security is kind of another branch of public policy. And so that raises a question of, you know, you guys both have experience you know, experienced it directly. But as you were doing the research, what was sort of the biggest surprise that hit you along the way? A few things were surprising. One thing that that I think is, is worth emphasizing that was partly surprising, and it's just to expand on the last point that Stephanie made, is something that one of our interviewees emphasized. Intelligence is just like any other expert community in government. And one of the big problems right now in Ottawa, and I think to some extent you can generalize to other national contexts, is that the intelligence community thinks of itself as far more different than it actually is. <laughs> and, and as long as that's the case, that prevents it from working well with others. But if you look at the threats that Ottawa, that, the, that Canada faces today, you know, economic espionage, foreign interference, threats to the vaccine supply during the pandemic, these are things that the intelligence community cannot address on its own. It needs to work with everybody to address electoral interference. CSC and CSIS need to work with Elections Canada, for example, which is mm. absolutely not a traditional partner by any stretch of the imagination. These are difficult relationships uh, for a lot of reasons, but ultimately, right, the, the way to, to, to optimally see intelligence is to, to understand it as one expert community, just like any other. Of course, the sources are different. The methods are different. The level of classification of the inf information is different. But fundamentally, you know, you called it the sausage, how the sausage is, is made. It's one input into the sausage make, making machine, just like the lawyers, just like the engineers, just like the doctors for public mm -hmm. health, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that if, if there's one thing that we, we push a bit in the conclusion in the book and that hopefully we can continue working on in, in future projects, is, is how to make intelligence more normal, basically. And I, I agree with that entirely. Uh, the only other thing that I would say that I found surprising was when we did interviews 
with people who are, you know, running intelligence analytical shops or, uh, you know, even on the policy side, we ask them about new enhanced review. One of the major changes that the Trudeau government has brought in is a new review, whether it's the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians or the National Security Intelligence Review Agency. You know, this is new for a lot of agencies like Global Affairs, D&D. They've never had their national security work looked at before in this way. And when we ask people and said, you know, are you, you know, how do you feel about review? No one. And I mean, like not one person thought more review was a bad idea. And that's right now there was different levels of enthusiasm to be sure. And there was a lot of conditions attached to that, like, you know, how it's done, the relationship, is it too adversarial? And we go a bit more into that into the book. But the one thing that um, surprised me, I think, was the recognition that more review of the community is needed and in a lot of cases actually very welcome. Well, that's really interesting because uh, Thomas's point was about to get me to ask the question, which you then followed up with, which is the intelligence agencies think of themselves as being special and different and unique, which makes them hard to understand by outsiders, or at least that's the way they think of themselves, or at least that's the way I was reading Thomas's comment, because that's the way the military thinks about things is that they're the experts. Nobody understands the use of military force besides the military, and they should be left to their own devices, which be, which becomes an excuse or a barrier to, you say review, I say oversight. And so it's, it's striking that with all these new efforts to, to understand better what the various intelligence processes and folks are doing, there's support for that, even if it's varies and it's conditional. Let me, let me just say, I have to, you know, my, my good friend and podcasting colleague, Craig Forces, who's actually on NCERA would get very mad at me if I didn't address the fact in the national security community overview uh, oversight. oversight means the active review of military operations mm. uh, or intelligence operations as they're ongoing. And, yeah, no, this is actually the correct. And 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 then in um, and, re and review actually means the post fact no. review of no. how this is done. No, that's the actual case of how the intelligence. No, that, that's that, that's approach. how they that's how they think about it in this country in this way. In the rest of the world, oversight it can be retroactive and off. And okay, well, is. welcome to Canada, Yankee. This is how I, it's done. Boom. I, I understand that, but the challenge is I want to beat you up. <laughs> I, I, the challenge is that I need to be able to speak with people beyond Canada about the stuff and speak people beyond the intelligence agencies. And over, I had this conversation yesterday with a, a senator about what is it they they do. And she's like, we do studies, we don't do oversight. And it's like, what are you studying? And so they're the reviewing. mindset, they're 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 engaged. Accountability. They're getting more information about what the agents are doing. And the idea is, in a principle, I feel like framework. we should have a separate podcast with Craig. This would be fun. No, I don't think so. But let's move on and not have this argument where I'm right and you're wrong because it's my podcast. Anyway. Just you... to get back to your question, though, I think one one issue, and your parallel with the military is an interesting one in terms of, of thinking that they're unique and, and agreeing or not agreeing to work with others. And I think there's a lot of different angles to address that. But fundamentally, I think you're right that there are real parallels and that there are real problems that, that hinder the ability of the government to address problems and under you know, suboptimal performances on the military side, on the intelligence side, because of that lack of an ability to work as a team. As a you know, as a team candidate or as a whole of government, whatever buzzword you want to use, and I think one one reason for that, not the only one, but one thing that we address in the book that I've found really interesting for years is a fundamental misunderstanding or a lack of education or a low literacy, if you want, in the intelligence world. But you can say the same thing on the military side. But what policy is and what it does and what it doesn't do, you know. So one thing you just said in your question, which was 
Absolutely correct. The military thinks nobody understands the military except them. Therefore, nobody can tell them what to do. That's a bit of a stretch, right? They don't all think like that. And But fundamentally, yes, that's an issue. On the intelligence side, you will hear a similar thing. But the whole point of policy is that they're generalists. They are not experts. They are, they are experts in the process, not in the substance. They are there to bring the different strands together, to build the sausage machine, and to actually supervise the sausage as it comes out and use the sausage, et cetera, et cetera. In, on the intelligence side, there is a, a, a very low literacy uh, in terms of how that works, what PCO does, what Treasury Board does, as Stephanie mentioned early on. So one of the, the recommendations we make in the book is to try to, to better train people in the intelligence community in terms of what policy is and what it does for them and what it should do for them. And so the question then becomes, what does Canada do really well in this sphere? And then we'll obviously lead to the next question, which is the opposite. So what does Canada really do well in intelligence? I, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, the community is small and that makes us more nimble. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, in the United States, like, you know, you know, I was a former intelligence analyst when we would meet our counterparts, we would meet with 30 different people, right? We are not that. I mean, you can often fit the people working on the Middle East in a single room in Canada, and there's advantages and disadvantages to that, right? When we interviewed our allies, one of the things they often would say is that Canada is very good at high level strategic analysis. So, you know, we, we're really good at the kind of 60 to 80,000 foot view. So that I think is also really important. And I, so I think those would be our two strengths, the fact that we're kind of nimble. Um, and then secondly, that I think that the the fact that we do you know our allies do respect our kind of high level strategic analysis and yeah and i think another thing we 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 can we could add to that is that you know overall the book is is fairly critical of the performance of the intelligence analysis community in terms of supporting policy and it's important to, to be clear on what the criteria for success is. The criteria for success is not good analysis, period. Some of the analysis produced in the community, some of it that I saw, that Stephanie saw, that we were told about in our interviews, is extremely good analysis on Chinese you know, military modernization or Russian influence operations or things like that. But the question is the so what? Does anybody care outside of the small analytical world of three or six analysts in Ottawa interested in that issue? Are clients interested in that? That's where the, the performance is, is not as good. And so when saying, what do we do well, it always matters you know, to, to define your criteria. That being said, another a clear theme in, in the book that we, we emphasize is that the community has improved a lot. As much as today, the performance is still not where it should be in terms of serving policy, it is night and day compared to what it was 10 or 20 years ago, when so much intelligence analysis was just produced for the sake of being produced and few, if anybody, read it outside of the analytical community. That is still a bit of a problem today, but far less than it was. So as much as Stephanie and I are critical in the book, we do insist that there has been improvement. Yeah, I mean, I always hate it when people say the intelligence produced was academic because we're academics and obviously our stuff is genius. But the fact is that you do have this improvement that we have seen. The intelligence is much more targeted and much more. There, there's been a number of units, CFINCOM being one of them, PCO, uh, Intelligence Assessment Secretariat, that have really made a lot of changes in how they deliver products. And uh, that's that's gone some way into actually influencing decision making. Others are a little bit more behind, but the other positive thing I think that we found is that there is a real strong desire for change mm -hmm. and that the community definitely seems to be moving in that direction. So that leads to the, the next question, which is what is the biggest weakness of the intelligence effort? 
Well, I think the, the biggest weakness is, you know, as much as we just recognize the progress in, 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 the pre in answer to your previous question, there's still a long way to go. You know, there's still too many intelligence analysts who have a too limited understanding of who they work for, uh, who, write, who reads their products, what are the needs of their clients. Generally speaking, the, the, you know, our, our point, and, and this is something that I've pushed hard over the years, giving training to the community, and is that intelligence analysis is a service. There should be a mentality in the community that we are there to serve clients. Uh, we are not there to write for ourselves. We are not there to write for other intelligence analysts in Canada or in allied countries. But these mentalities are still uh, fairly prevalent today. So as much as we've recognized progress in the book compared to the very low point where it was 10 or 20 years ago, there's still a long way to go. Uh, and, and, and in the book, we try to nuance that to say where there has been progress, where there has been less, and offer suggestions for the way ahead. But it, it's still, uh, I, I would say, a fairly big problem. Yeah, I think the other thing too here is uh, structural. And Tamad mentioned that in the end, you know, some of the changes we do make are, you know, there, there are some, you know, changes within the center, as it were, that could be done with regards to, you know, how intelligence is pushed into decision-making. But I think the other thing is, you know, there's this perennial question of whether or not Canada should have more foreign intelligence. We do actually collect foreign intelligence. Of course, communication security establishment collects signals intelligence. There's political reporting that is gotten by Global Affairs Canada, but we don't have a CIA. We don't have an MI6. And does that, how does that impact our capabilities, our independence and our independence in terms of decision-making? Now, this is nothing new. This has been a long-standing debate in Canada, whether or not we actually need such an organization. But I think that in the end, it does make us reliant on our allies. And one of the things we found is that Often when we get foreign intelligence, because, you know, the United States has such a large intelligence apparatus or the United Kingdom, that a lot of this information is often taken at face value without really critically assessing how it fits into the Canadian narrative. So one of the trends that Tama and I are particularly interested in is this process by which there is an attempt to kind of, quote unquote, Canadianize the way we look at foreign intelligence. So, for example, when we get you know, assessed pieces in from the United States, we have to recognize that they're looking at certain issues through the prism of their own capabilities, their own interests, mm -hmm. how that information was collected. Are we thinking about that when we're incorporating it into our own assessments, into our own decision-making going forward? I think Tama and I, you know, we, we do think more foreign intelligence would be a good thing, but not for its own sake, right? I mean, setting up a foreign, foreign human intelligence agency is expensive, there's, it's a legal nightmare. There's a lot, there's, I'm not entirely convinced that there is the political will to do such a thing, either in the government or in the Canadian populace. So if that's the case, how do we then move forward with trying to, you know, perhaps find ways to increase the amount of information you have? And there's a lot you can do in, in open source these days, right? Which is like a whole other kettle of fish, maybe a conversation for another day. But the fact is that we are seeing an effort in Canada to try and look at issues through more of a Canadian lens. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing, not just for our own decision-making, but also if we can bring more of our own views to the table in multilateral discussions, we actually think that would be a very positive thing for Canada and Canadian foreign policy overall. I think it's something that our allies would welcome. So talked a little bit before about what you guys call review. And the question is, after the conservatives helped to blow up 
NIZICOP. I don't know how you pronounce the acronym, the parliamentary committee that there's, was, there's no consensus, I don't yeah. think. Yeah, so NSICOP. NSICOP. So what is the state of, of review of, of intelligence? And uh, I assume that some of the recommendations your book were about how to improve it. So with regards to the review in, in Canada, it's it's nascent, right? All these things are very nascent. Canada went from a very short time of being one of the worst countries for review in the Western world to now, you know, kind of at the, I don't want to say forefront, but not, not doing too shabby, right? And so the problem was when we were doing our interviews in 2018, 2019, all of this was still very new, mm-hmm. right? All of this was still, it hadn't, the impact of it hadn't hit yet. So I think one of the things we're planning to do, and we were very fortunate, we got an insight grant. So we're going to be following up on a lot of these issues. Review is something that's really interesting to me and I'm calling it review, damn it. But um, uh, one of the things that we're really interested in is, you know, a couple of years down the road, what can we really say about it? I think as it stands, the NS and CIRA, is doing well. It's it's pretty big. It's pretty robust. It's recognized a ways to try and get its reviews out faster. Mm-hmm. I strongly expect in the next few months we're going to be seeing a whole host of reviews coming out of Ensira, and that's that's a good thing. But you know everything like everything was some of these reviews were held up by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. NZCOP is or NSI COP is a bit of a different story. I think one of the issues is, well, there's a number of issues here with, with regards to it. And there's not enough time to really go into them all. I, but I think the first thing is that it really wasn't designed for a series of minority governments, right? <laughs> um, and that's, that's the truth of the matter is that, you know, it doesn't have the stability that it, it kind of needs in order to, to be kind of successful in that way. And it's kind of become a political football, which I think is actually a very bad and very dangerous thing. But the second thing is that, you know, we have seen the conservatives raise the point that MPs should be allowed access to intelligence. And, you know, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. We've seen this in other countries around the world, Steve. And, and I know with Phil Lagasse that you, this is like one of your, your projects that, that you're working yep. on. And so, you know, is, is NCCOP and SICOP a transition between something like, you know, like having basically no review to kind of a halfway house to eventually transitioning to more of something what the UK has called the Intelligence Security Committee, the ISC, UK ISC. It's not free of its own problems, but eventually having a committee whereby it's not a, you know, we can get into this whole thing of committee of parliament versus parliamentary committee. But I think there is good reason to believe that, you know, NZCOP is this kind of halfway house. And eventually we're going to transition into something else whereby you do have proper parliamentary committees, right? That have access to intelligence that will eventually be able to review things. I just felt that, you know, my personal opinion was that selling the intelligence community, which has not had the kind of review that exists in other countries on a full parliamentary committee with intelligence is, was, was a bit of a hard sell. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of a way to test the waters before moving to that model. And I would say the final thing here is, is, but we also need our parliamentarians to step up and not use intelligence as, you know, one of the things that the intelligence community worried about was that, you know, we don't have a mature intelligence and national security culture in Canada. We simply don't. And that, you know, MPs suddenly demanding access to the highest classified allied intelligence in order to use it for 
whatever political ends that they want is not in the best interest of the country. So I think this is this is where we need to go. I would say so I would say the state of review in Canada is mixed. Okay. Can I just make two two quick points on that? Uh, mixed, absolutely. But, uh, you know, the realist in me, the, the slightly cynical and pessimistic in general, it was never going to be easy, even in the best of cases. So the progress that we've seen in the last four or five years, mixed might even be a generous way to assess it, but it's better than nothing. And the progress was never going to be linear and, and rapid. So ultimately, I would say that the picture is actually quite good, even though I come at that from a very cynical and pessimistic perspective. You know, if you just look at what these uh, bodies and CIRA and NSI COP have produced, there is more scrutiny than there ever was, mm-hmm. as imperfect as it is. And that's a good thing. There is more transparency than there ever was. And that's also a good thing. NSI COP reports have included tons of information that had never been made public before, as much as some of the severances, I think, were a bit abusive in, in those reports. It's a really good thing, as imperfect as it is. The only other thing that I'd mention is the issue of trust. And, and we touch really briefly on that in, in the book. Hopefully in future projects, we'll go deeper into that. For review and oversight, however you define them, right, to be optimal, there needs to be trust. Distant trust, because it's an inherently adversarial process, it's confrontational, it's not supposed to be friendly, it's not supposed to be fun. But if there is not enough trust, if between the intelligence community and the review and oversight bodies, there's too much Uh, suspicion, too much hostility, too much mistrust, then the process can't work well. We're not there in Canada, so to be clear. But one thing that I think external observers like us should really look closely at is the evolution of that trust between review and oversight bodies and the community, because it's it's not going to be perfect. But if it goes in too much of a wrong direction, then then the future is not going to where we want it to be. And, and I the, think I should just say our, our interviewees were very open about that. I guess the, the question I would ask from a theoretical perspective where I, I think about the importance of oversight or review is how it operates in the heads of those who are being reviewed. That is, in a principal agent framework, what you, why you want oversight is not so that way you catch people doing wrong things, but that they, the people who are doing the stuff know that if they do bad things, that they're likely to get caught. So that, to serve as a deterrent on people doing bad things. So the question I have is, are these review agencies starting to get in the heads of the folks doing the work in the intelligence agency so that they know that if they stray from what is appropriate, that they will be caught? I would say that, A, there needs to be more research to answer that question definitively. I don't think anybody from outside government or even inside for that matter can answer your question uh, clearly. If anybody does, I would say be very suspicious of that answer because we don't know yet. It's a very good question, but we look more into it. And and we, Stephanie and I do hope to look more into it. I would say based on on our research for this book, which was in 2018-19, right, for the interviews themselves, But a lot of informal conversations we've had since, is it in the heads of people? Yes, it absolutely is. Uh, Is it a deterrent to bad things? I would say that it is trending in that direction, but Mm -hmm. we need, again, much more research. I would add, though, that, that your question, as valid as it is, is incomplete because, yes, you want review and oversight to be a deterrent for bad things, but you also want it to be incentives for good things, not just on the on the bad mm-hmm. side. And I would say that on, on that side, too, there are signs of progress. Enough? I don't know. But, but based on multiple informal conversations with the community, things like record keeping, which have not always been mm-hmm. where they should have been in the community, 
are better now. Right. Things like uh, transparency, things like, you know, cooperation between departments, information sharing, it's on minds. How much of a substantive difference there is, we'll see, but yes, it's on their minds. I would, so, if I can just, I, I, like one last thing I would just add to that, absolutely, is that I think a lot of our interviewees also talked about this idea of social license. Like review is the is is what you pay for social license that you know it's also a way to increase trust not just with the you know policymakers or the the political people but also with the Canadian public writ large and I think that's a really important thing um um you know we've expanded the powers of the national security community in some cases in some fairly dramatic ways and review doesn't always just say you did this wrong it also says you did this right. Mm-hmm. You know, it can also say, you know, we looked into this and yeah, it was okay. So I, and I think the community understands this. It's not just a deterrent. It's also an incentive for that, you know, to show off the fact that, you know, we're not run by a bunch of psychopaths or people mm-hmm. who just want to hack into everything that actually, no, we, we take mm-hmm. these restrictions and rules and regulations very seriously. And when we've made a mistake, we want to correct them. But also for the vast majority of our cases, we haven't made many mistakes. So I'm sure your book has recommendations. What are the, what's the most important recommendation you made in the book and what's the most likely recommendation to actually happen, which are probably two different things. Uh, We have a full chapter at the end before the conclusion with multiple recommendations. So it's a bit hard to say which one is the most important. And I'm not even sure that I, I, I know which one to pick, but I would go back to the issue of intelligence literacy in the policy world, which is low, and policy literacy in the intelligence world, which is also low, and which is a bigger problem. And so our recommendation is to do multiple small things to try to improve policy literacy in the intelligence world. Training is one of them, but training is it can only take you so far, right? Half a day course on how Ottawa works is, is nice, but will not you know, massively increase the, the, the policy literacy of, of intelligence analysts and operators. So you know, exchanges and secondments and, and better connections, more communication, you know, joint programs, to, to hire people and things like that. That's, I think, one of the one of the key ones. Will it be implemented? It is in the process of being implemented already. There are some efforts that are ongoing. I think we would say, both of us, that there should be even more, but I think it's important to recognize that there is some, some progress already at that level. Yeah, I absolutely endorse that. I think as our probably most important recommendation just to find ways for the two worlds, the policy community and the intelligence community to understand each other better and to mm-hmm. work with each other better. I think that's going to make a huge difference going forward. The only other thing I would say is, you know, what I said earlier about Canadianization, trying to find ways to maximize how we get information and use it and then make sure that we're looking through problems with a Canadian lens on them. I think that's going to be something that's really important for the future. Well, it suggests to me that one thing we need to do is have you guys speak to our Summer Institute next summer, because that's a, a melding of policy folks, military folks, and junior academics getting a better understanding of how things work in the defense and national security space. And we didn't really cover intelligence that much. Tomas was one of the uh, participants this summer, but he was speaking more about bridging the gap in different ways between the policy world and the academic world. But we should have the two of you come back for that experience next summer, hopefully in person, where you can help the next generation of policy officers, military officers, and academics understand exactly this thing, the, the how the policy people and the intel people can talk to each other in, in more fruitful ways. But one step is this podcast, because we actually do have some policy people who listen to it. And so hopefully they'll, they'll take you up on, on learning more about how to communicate. And obviously the first step to that is to buy in your excellent book, which is a bestseller specific Amazon subcategory bestselling list. So congratulations on the success of your book. And we have one last question that the 
the audience of Battle Rhythm needs to know about, which is what is the big surprise you faced, Stephanie, as a new dog owner? Oh, that dogs really have their own battle rhythm. <laughs> I, it really is true. It's like, you know, I'm kind of like someone who likes to schedule things. And, you know, there's times where the dog wants to eat, dog doesn't want to eat. Dog wants to use the bathroom, dog doesn't want to use the bathroom. It has its own battle rhythm. And I'm, I'm constantly trying to adjust to it. So my, I, I now run my life on dog time. Very fair. Well, I'm, I've enjoyed the pictures of Max and I hope to meet Max one of these days. I want to thank the two of you. Uh, for those who don't know it, Thomas, you, you, know, you could ask about Tomas Katz. I don't care about cats. Tomas has great pictures of his cats, but what I didn't say at the outset was Tomas teaches at the University of Ottawa. Stephanie teaches at Carleton University in the office directly next to mine. So the big question on any given day is, I am more a distraction to her with my loud laughter, or is she more of a distraction to me with her loud stuff? And I, these days, it's not going on because we're not next door to each other. And I miss that very much, Stephanie. Work is not the same uh, without you popping in and sharing your, your enthusiasm for everything. So thanks again to the two of you for being on our podcast. And I do recommend that people listen to their podcasts. Conseil de Securite and Intrepid are still ongoing endeavors. And if we at Battle Rhythm have been plagiarizing and inspired by Intrepid for low these many years, as, as, as Stephanie was the groundbreaker in this form of engagement in, in a... Canada. So thanks again for being on the podcast, guys, and good luck with the next book. Thank you. Thank you so much. This episode is going to air after Halloween, but Halloween is my head, so my recommendations are very much Halloween themed. I think one of the best zombie books ever, and one of the Really great book, and I probably mentioned here before, is World War Z. The movie itself, not very good, but the book is fantastic. It really is about the comparative politics and sociology of how different countries respond to a zombie outbreak. And given that we're in the middle of a pandemic where countries are behaving differently compared responding to the same threat, I think it really is a perfect, perfect book. So I recommend that. Happy Death Day is a fun, fun movie. It's about a woman that's a Groundhog Day type movie. But it uh, has a horror blend to it where a woman keeps on getting killed by the same murderer, no matter how many different ways she tries to escape him. Wakes up the next day, goes through it all over again. It's on a college campus, so that makes it fun, too, for me. Uh, so happy death day. And there's a sequel, happy death day to you, too, I think. Uh, and that was delightful. And lots of TV shows have great Halloween episodes. And that's always a, a great feature of a, of a TV sitcom is their Halloween episode. And for me, one of the most outstanding ones was Communities Epidemiology where the entire college campus eats something bad and leads to a zombie outbreak. Those are my three Halloween r, &R recommendations. So I hope you had a great Halloween. Uh, I'm looking forward to celebrating mine in Copenhagen. We'll see how the Danes do Halloween and we'll report on that in the next Battle Rhythm. Take care.